Welcome to today's Lots of Matzah Pizza Podcast. Today we have the new head coach at the Blake School, Whitney Colbert, for the girls program. Whitney has a great track record playing hockey on the East Coast in prep school and uh, college Division Three has moved on to coach at the Division Three and Division One level. We'll hear about that, as well as being an assistant coach for the Chinese national team, which was based here in the Twin Cities. We're going to get a good chance to meet Whitney and learn all about what makes her tick. Hope you enjoy today's show. Love is a burning thing and it makes a fiery ring bound by wild desire I fell into a ring of fire. Well, good afternoon, Whitney. How are you doing today? Good, Tony. How are you? I'm doing great. We're surviving this COVID-19 stalemate, and uh, we're still <laughs> we're still have plenty of great guests to talk to, and we're really lucky to have you on today. Yeah, thanks so much for having me on. I appreciate it. It's it's really cool. Like I I'm always searching for interesting guests, and and wow, did we get lucky here? Like the Blake coach, you know, Blake job opens up. Uh, Sean uh, Reed steps aside and so we've been waiting for a few weeks to get a replacement and all of a sudden boom it happened the one of the best jobs in the state uh, falls in the lap falls in your lap and and we get a chance to meet who you are before everybody else gets to meet you haven't even met your teammates yet or the teams you're the kids you're going to coach yet exactly exactly yeah I'm looking forward to it hopefully it'll it'll be sooner rather than later yeah, it's definitely a, a different time. Um, you had actually, uh, speaking of the COVID, when I mentioned it dur- during the preview here, is you coached the Chinese national team. We could do an entire segment on COVID that way. What was going on in uh, your players' brains when this was all kind of coming to the forefront? Because it, the, the, the virus ultimately starts in their country. What were they thinking when this was all going down? Yeah, well, we were actually in China, um, our whole team was, when the virus kind of broke out and, and became a lot more known. Um, uh-huh. So we were actually in China from January 12th until the, I think there's the 26th or 27th. And so at that point, obviously, it was becoming a, a pretty big deal. And mm-hmm. we were trying to figure out when we would even be able to go back to the United States or what that would look like. And so that was kind of where the the journey started with, uh, you know, all the, the craziness that is is now becoming a, a much, much bigger deal than all of us even anticipated. And um, so we, we ended up coming back to uh, to the U.S. And did you have um, to get quarantined? We did not. Okay. No, we did not. Because actually, when we got back from China, there wasn't any testing at that time. Okay. So we had some uh, we had a few different health issues between the staff, uh, but nothing obviously too threatening. Um, and you know, some of us actually think we had COVID myself included to yeah. at some points, but, um, but they didn't actually have the test at that point either. So it was really hard for us to, to know that for sure, but hoping that we didn't in some ways. And, um, so that was, you know, definitely a, a situation for us, but, um, you know, when we got back, there were actually only 11 players that flew back with us. That was my next question. Um, did they actually, did, yeah. did the players actually come back here to train after, on January 26th? Yeah. So they weren't sure what the, if there were going to be any issues with the border. And right. so because of that, they sent half the players back with, um, you know, two of the translators. Um, and so those guys came back, uh, didn't have any issues with the border. And then uh, a day and a half later, we were going to send the second group of players back. And at that time, it was actually about an hour and a half before the U.S. had cut off the borders from China. So, no way. Y- yeah. So, so did the 11 players just come back. go back then or did they stay or what did they do? The, yeah, the 11 players um, that were here ended up staying here. We trained them for about three and a half weeks and then... Um, obviously we found out that our world championships were canceled. Um, and so they went back, but we kept trying to get the, the other half of the players over here, you know, during those three weeks and obviously didn't end up getting them back, unfortunately, but, um, you know, it all kind of worked out in the end where, you know, now they're all back together. And unfortunately they're back, you know, back in China and they're not all here, but, 
um, just seemed like the safest move at that time to make sure that they right. were back home with their families. Uh, how, uh, when you were in China, uh, what city were you in and, and was it a big, was it a big deal there or was it, was it more like kind of like a flu? Like we kind of, in January, the Minnesotans were thinking it's kind of like a flu and, and then really we didn't take it as seriously until obviously end of February, early March. Right. Yeah, it's a it was a pretty big deal there. People in general um, wear masks. We were actually about 40 minutes outside of Beijing. Um, mm-hmm. We went into Beijing a couple times. One of one of those times was for uh, an Olympic gala. So it was a handful of Olympic winter Olympic sports that actually all came together for a, a banquet um, and a little presentation and a couple other fun events there. Um but for the most part, we were in uh, what basically looked like a convention center um, with the a couple other teams that were training there because there was a, a rank right on the convention center. So we had our, our national team camp there. And, um, and so we were there for about two weeks. But it was uh, it was a pretty much a ghost town where we were because um, we were so far outside the city. Um, but I feel like I didn't even get to really experience you know, the full on Chinese culture, because when we were in Beijing, um, typically it's kind of shoulder to shoulder there with uh, with people. And there was no one there because of the the Chinese New Year was actually during that time. Right. Um, and so it was a little bit of a ghost town, you know, as is. But I think the, the virus certainly started to scare people um, a little bit, too, where there really wasn't anyone around at all. So it was definitely an interesting vibe to it. And um, we actually had a, a an Uber driver uh, driving us back to our hotel. And he said, you know, jokingly that only, you know, the Chinese would end up getting this virus. And it's, uh, it was definitely much bigger than even they had anticipated there. So hopefully, uh, hopefully everyone's getting better there. But the good thing was, is there weren't that many people that were out at that time. So hopefully they're, you know, they're safe there for the most part. Did you, you talked about the masks. Did you say that it was pretty common for people to wear masks uh, over there? Yeah, that for the most part, people do wear a mask around there just because of the air quality. Um, okay. Air quality in general is just not not all that great, uh, which I actually experienced firsthand too. Tell me about um, that. Yeah, it's a you know for someone who likes to work out and be active and and run and do things like that, it was actually even really challenging for me too. And um, kind of the first time that I noticed was actually when we were on the ice at the convention center and. You kind of you would smell sort of different fumes and, you know, you thought it was just from the, you know, Zamboni not getting the proper ventilation, which I'm sure was also part of the issue. But uh, um, it was also, you know, partly because the air quality there in general is just is just really poor. Um, And so it was a a challenge to have, you know, these high level athletes train in such poor air quality. And, you know, from what they were used to here in Minnesota, it was was going to say, so when they get here, does it feel like they're on on the mountaintop or just feel like it's great? I don't know. I'm trying to think of what would be a clean air. Like the mountaintop seems like pretty clean spot, right? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I think they felt pretty good about their training here, which was great. So it's a, I think they really have enjoyed their time in Minnesota. That's for sure. Well, we'll get back to the Chinese national team. Let's get to know Whitney personally, who you are, how you grew up, where you played. Um, you grew up here, uh, says Ithaca, New York. Uh, big family, small family? Big family, yep. Um, I actually have five siblings, so there's seven people in my family. And wow. Yeah, yep. So I'm the youngest of five kids. Um, okay. And actually have a twin sister, too. And so. what's, what's her name? Her name is Alex. Okay. All right. And what, yeah. is she, what does she do? And now are you guys close as a result of being twins or just normal, <laughs> yeah. more like a sibling, normal sibling? <laughs> no, we're definitely very close. We we don't talk every single day, but we're we're very, very close. She actually lives in New York City um, with her fiance there. And um, I, she's actually in uh, Charleston right now and just trying to get away from, you know, trying to find some more space for herself to get away from this virus. Yeah. But, um, yeah, I think she, she had quite the experience there in New York city as well, but, um, all of my siblings are in, in big cities. My, one of my older brothers is in LA and oldest sister is in, um, in Boston actually. And yeah. then my other brother is in Ithaca too. So okay. we're a little bit everywhere. <laughs> um, so do you and your sister Alex have kind of a right brain, left brain? Do you know what others thinking that kind of thing? <laughs> you always hear about it, but yeah. you, you don't yeah. get a chance to interview twins very often. Yeah, I think it's definitely easier when you're, you know, you're in the same spot. Um, my mom has actually joked that I would call her and then, you know, 15 la- minutes later, she would call her or vice versa. And so I think really? there's definitely that. Uh, yeah, yeah, there's definitely that uh, 
that twin connection that we have for sure. But, uh, you know, as we kind of get older and we're not, we don't see each other as much as we'd like to. And I think that sort of starts to, to fade a little bit. But when we're together, we're, we're definitely very much on the same page. That's for sure. <laughs> are you guys um, identical twins? We are, yes. So do you look we exactly are. alike? We look very similar. Okay. We look very similar. I have uh, I have about an inch on her height-wise, which would be surprising to people that have met me in person because I'm not all that tall. But Okay. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, we, we do look very similar. Did your mom and dad dress you up as, as twins, like same outfits all the time? Oh yeah. I think, uh, <laughs> Halloween was their favorite, <laughs> one of their favorite holidays. Cause they could dress us up in whatever. And it usually revolved around something that was twin related. So oh, yeah, we dressed up a lot. <laughs> classic. That's classic. All right. So I'm guessing maybe it was a sibling ahead of you that got you into hockey. Tell us how you yeah. got into it. Yep. Just, it's yeah. a guess, total guess. You never know, right? You know, just a guess. Yeah, two older brothers. Surprise, okay. Surprise there. Um, yeah, we, so we obviously, Ithaca is a very much a hockey town with Cornell University and, uh, you know, their men's program has, has had a, had a lot of historical success and obviously current success and their women's program is now right there with really them. Really good, and, yes. Yeah. And so they've, they've just had you know, a lot of success around hockey in general. And it's funny, I actually started growing up playing roller hockey. Really? Um, cool. So, yeah, which is very interesting because it was a, a pretty big sport in the summertime. So it was kind of the, the fun thing to do where, you know, we can sort of get out of our driveways and, and play a little bit of roller hockey. And, you know, just seeing, you know, more Cornell hockey games and things like that, I actually started to play ice hockey. And, you know, part of that I have to dedicate to my brother because he quickly showed me that uh, goaltending was not for me and uh and he, he was a goalie make me, he was not he oh. would make me play goalie oh, got it. looking for one of course of <laughs> so, course i should have known that yeah. did your sister <laughs> yeah. play hockey she played hockey too yeah okay. she she played a little bit um in high school and then ended up getting a kind of a career-ending injury but she was she was playing and so we'd always play street hockey with our neighbors who ended up um, playing hockey too and um, so we played a lot of street hockey and they were in need for a goalie and I was definitely the easiest person to say you know get in the net and, and play yep. and so <laughs> I think after you know some time I, I realized that that position was not for me and I wanted to, to score a little bit more and you know not get too many more pucks to the face when we didn't have the proper equipment so it's uh, <laughs> I definitely quickly learned that um, I definitely wanted to play ice hockey, but I also wanted to be a forward too. So right. it was a pretty cool experience. So, so how do you, what was it like, uh, in, in a town like Ithaca? Um, was it a boy, did you play with the boys or was there girls only teams at that point? There, yeah, there was one youth organization called the Ithaca shooting stars. Um, I played for them for a handful of years, actually, uh, kind of the, premier program um in that area was the syracuse stars um who i was who i played a couple games with part time um it's about an hour hour and 15 minutes away yeah it's not too far so lots of hockey options um but you know with that too we certainly had to travel to to go to practices and to games and things of, of that nature. And so it became a little bit more challenging, you know, being the youngest of five kids. And right. so that's why I stuck with Ithaca as long as I did and had a great experience there. Cause I think that's where I really learned to love hockey. So it's a, it was a, a really cool experience. I'm really glad that I ended up playing where I did for, for as long as I did too. Now you went to prep school to play hockey. Did your sister go to the same prep school or did you guys split up? She did. Yeah. We went to the Berkshire school, um, which is in Western Massachusetts. Uh, we went there our sophomore year of high school. Um, we were actually roommates there, of course. (laughs) So (laughs) some things never change, but, uh, but yeah, we, we had a great experience there and, you know, all of our siblings were, you know, at different colleges at that point. And so I think we kind of, got a little uh, sick of not having anyone else in the house and thought, you know, this might be a really cool and different opportunity that our older siblings didn't have. And, um, you know, found Berkshire and, and it was a fantastic, fantastic fit in so many different ways for us. Yeah. And it was it far from home. It, it wasn't too far. It was about three and a half hours, which okay. was kind of a, a nice distance where we could, you know, drive home if we had to, but it wasn't uh, too far where we, we had to fly by any means. Right, right. Now, what is the, uh, you've, you've spent one winter here in Minnesota for sure. Um, yeah. And you've been here during the winters recruiting for you, and we'll get to that in a little bit. Um, yeah. What, 
how, what was your take on uh, Minnesota winter versus uh, Ithaca or Western Massachusetts winters? <laughs> yeah, I think I, I think I came here during a pretty mild winter to say the least, but uh, you know, growing up in upstate New York, it wasn't, uh, there's not too much of a difference. Um, you know, certainly we got a lot of snow where we were in Ithaca, um, and get quite a bit here. I'm sure with the lake effect, know, but, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. The, the only thing is it's definitely a little bit colder here temperature wise, okay. but, uh, I came on a pretty mild winter, I think, and, you know, it would come for the, you know, the Minnesota, you know, Christmas tournaments, um, when I was recruiting at Union and, Went through a couple of different snowstorms, which was interesting. So I think I've gotten a better view of what the Minnesota winters are really like now, which is great. Yeah. I, you know, it's funny. I'm looking at your resume here at Union, and I, I, I run a Christmas tournament for, for boys tournaments down in Prairie Lake, and we had a few just horrible ice storms in 17 and 18. So if you came out those winters, yeah. I, I remember that that. The, the week between Christmas and, and New Year's. It's it's not easy. Exactly. It was not easy. <laughs> um, that's all right. It was eventful. That's that's for sure. Yeah. So do one more Ithaca question, then we'll move on to prep school sure. um, and prep school hockey and that dynamic. Um, did you, is it Was it cold enough to, to freeze ice in the backyard or on the pond? It's... Uh, you know, it didn't get cold enough for that long. Um, okay. We didn't we didn't have ice in the backyard or or anything like that. We had a pond that we would skate uh, that actually overlooked uh, the lake, which we lived on or lived near, I should say. Um, and that uh, it was still deep enough where it took quite a while, so it didn't ever freeze. You know, kind of the way that the the lakes here freeze in the winter, which was uh, unfortunate. And so we were kind of praying for the cold weather to be able to skate on the pond. And when it didn't, it was a uh, a little bit upsetting for, for us as kids, to say the least. It's kind of a double-edged sword, isn't it? I want it to get so <laughs> exactly. cold so we can go out there and skate, but I don't want it to be too cold so I can't go out there and skate, right? It's, 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 it's a double-edged <laughs> exactly. sword. So, so, you, so tell me about prep school hockey. You, you get out there uh, your sophomore year. You play three years at the Berkshire School. What was that yeah like was it was it more competitive was it uh was it the right speed for you did you meet meet new friends what was tell me about that dynamic yeah it was definitely uh at that at that time and given where I was it was definitely a a step up in terms of the the competitivism and between you know different programs and you know I had some some great friends from Berkshire that you know went on to play you know at different division one division three schools um at that time I was playing with one of my best friends now, uh, Jill Sonia, who's on the Canadian Olympic team. Um, so she was, she was there as a freshman and, you know, she was pretty, uh, I'm sure you can imagine she was definitely one of yeah. the premier players <laughs> yeah, <I'm pretty laughs> to go sure. through and yeah. very fun to watch even being her teammate. Um, but I played with some, some great players and, you know, Casey Bellamy went to Berkshire as well from the U S team and Kendall Coyne was there for, for a postgraduate year too. So there were, there were definitely some, some great players, um, really just one when I was playing there, but, um, some great players that went through Berkshire and, you know, I knew that hockey was something that I wanted to pursue at the collegiate level and, um, growing up in Ithaca and, and like I said, not being able to basically travel as much as I would have liked to and family, you know, and all that fun stuff. But, um, Berkshire was a really great way for me to, to be able to, to kind of take that next step in, in, you know, my game for, for being able to play hockey and being seen at that time, you know, given where I was. Right. Um, but it also allowed me to, to play different sports, you know, more, year, more so year round. So I played soccer in the fall and then I played lacrosse in the spring and was actually looking to play lacrosse at Trinity as well too. And yeah. so um, there were definitely a lot more opportunities in terms of playing sports, but I also, you know, wanted to go to Berkshire because I like to, to meet different people and, and try different things. And, um, there were a lot of really cool experiences that I got at Berkshire that I wasn't able to, to get, you know, at when home. I was at, at home, just purely because of the resources that we had all in one place. And, right. um, you know, not to mention there were some, some great, great people that are lifelong friends. And, you know, I had some great mentors there at Berkshire as well, whether they're my professors or not, but, um, there were just, uh, it was just such a great family knit environment, which is, you know, really why I had such a great, enjoyable experience, you know, during my high school is why I wanted to get back into to high school hockey too. So I think there were, you know, these kind of, these roles sort of played hand in hand with each other of, you know, my really privileged experience at Berkshire, but, you know, now looking at, uh, at Blake and, and seeing a lot of similarities in the schools and, you know, what the programs and schools have to offer. 
Right. So let's walk through. Uh, you're obviously a coach, and you've been in coaching ever since you graduated from college at, at Trinity. We'll get to Trinity in just a second. At, at this point, uh, through high school, through through 18 years old, did you have a, a coach, whether it was back in Ithaca or at Berkshire, that was a, a, an influence on you to get into coaching? Yeah, yeah. I had a, I had a great coach uh, in Ithaca. His name is Tony Eisenhut. Um, he was my coach when I was playing at the Ithaca Shooting Stars, and um, you know, he had three daughters himself and I played with all three of them, uh, cause they were right around the same age. And, um, and he, he actually played hockey at Cornell for the men's program too. And, um, and I think he was really kind of the, the monumental, you know, coaching figure that I had that, you know, he was really tough, but kind of showed you he'd loved you and, and cared for you and would do anything for you to, to make sure that you feel, you know, the best prepared for, whether that was a game or a tournament or whatever that might be, but also, you know, we had a lot of fun too. And so I think he was kind of that perfect balance between, you know, having fun, being able to compete, um, developing relationships and, you know, all of those things that you want as a player. Um, those were things that I want to kind of carry with me as a coach and have tried to sort of develop my coaching style around, you know, him as well as um, a couple of great coaches at Berkshire. I had Sylvia Gappa for three years and then Laurie Sharpentier for a year there too. And so, I think I've just been really fortunate to have such great coaching role models. That's um, interesting. As so an you're, you're talking about a male and a female. So it wasn't like you just had all men or all women growing up as coaches. And you kind of did yeah. you say we're able to learn from both. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I think our, our, our head coach at Berkshire, Lori Sharpentier at the time, um, she was actually our athletic director at Berkshire too. And so, just talk about a, a role model in a lot of different ways. She was someone that kind of demonstrated that you can, you know, be strong and powerful in a position, but also, you know, show people the the right ways to coaching and, and building confidence with her players too. So there were a lot of, you know, great positives that she brought and I still stay in touch with her, you know, every once in a while now too, and seeing her along the recruiting trail now that she has a, a daughter who plays hockey in high school and, and things like that. So I've had a lot of great role models, which that's, I've been really fortunate that's very to have. Cool. So, so how do you you get done with school at Berkshire? And now you're looking to 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 go to school. Uh, I'm guessing at this point, just like a kid in the Midwest, uh, I'm guessing most of your options or most of your choices are or we're, we're we're on the East Coast. Did you look in the Midwest at all? You know, I I didn't at that time. Um, I was still trying to figure out kind of what my options were. Um, yep. You know, my older sister went to UConn, um, older brother went to Ithaca College, and then other older brother, I should say, went to Syracuse. Um, so we were, that's, we that's kind of worked around the East Coast. spectrum, right? Yeah, yeah. And Bigger was, schools uh, was, compared to yeah, Trinity. Exactly, exactly. And I think, you know, I chose a smaller school just, I would say, really uh, because of my experience at Berkshire. I just loved the, the small class sizes and really getting to know your professors and teachers and um, kind of having more of that relationship and, you know, had I not gone to Berkshire, I don't know if I would have chosen Trinity. And I'm, I'm really glad that, uh, that I went to both schools because of those, you know, long-term relationships that I developed there. Right. Where did your sister end up going to school? Alex. She went to Syracuse as well. Oh, no yeah. way. Two. Yeah. <laughs> so we were, we were pretty far apart at that time. That was a, that was definitely a transition for sure. But you know, she went into the sorority scene and I, you know, had my, my hockey teammates there too. And so we kind of found our niche pretty quick, which was, which was great for us. So while, while at Trinity, you played all four years there, what was uh, one of your takeaways from playing there? Yeah. Yeah. There were, I had a great experience there. Um, you know, I, there were a lot of injuries. I had a lot of concussion issues and so I didn't, I barely played my freshman year and started to slowly segue into playing. And, um, so I, I continue to have those concussion issues, but, um, you know, I think I had some, some awesome teammates there who were, I was obviously always supporting me and we were a top 10 program there with, with Andy McPhee as the head coach for, for my first two years, or I should say year and a half. But, um, there was a definitely an interesting transition for me because, um, I actually had three coaches when I was at Trinity. So, wow. um, yeah, so I had Andy McPhee who had, um, recruited me, um, you know, and, and coached me for that, that year, I should say just over a year. And then I had our assistant coach, who's Carson Duggan, um, who had a, a pretty extensive playing career and she's fantastic. Um, she played at St. Lawrence and yep. 
So she was uh, my coach, my head coach for those next two years. And then uh, my senior year, we actually had Jenny Potter as our head coach there. Wow. Wow. Small world, huh? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Definitely different coaching styles for sure. But I think it's, uh, it was cool for me to, to see those coaching styles. And, um, you know, I, I certainly learned a lot from all of them. Um, and some I related more to than others, just from a, a coaching perspective. But I think they, you know, they all brought a, a great amount of knowledge to, to Trinity about hockey. And I think there's, there's certainly a lot of, uh, really, really strong positives that, that I learned from all three of them and really fortunate to have, have had all three. Well, your world is going to get much smaller as you coach ice hockey at, at Blake. You're going to see Jenny Potter there. Cause I know she uses quite a bit of ice there when she trains. Yeah, <laughs> have you seen exactly. her yet? Are you haven't or you have? I, you know, she, she came to one of our, our Chinese games actually when we played St. Thomas this year. So I got okay. to see her a little bit, but I, you know, I haven't, unfortunately, <laughs> not I, too often. I, I just think she, I've heard she used a lot of ice at Blake. I'm like, well, that, now isn't that going to be a nice small world for you when yeah. you're you <laughs> to practice and she's out there training? Exactly. So she's a really good trainer. She's got a great, developed a really good reputation here in the Twin Cities. Absolutely. Absolutely. So after college, you get, uh, h- how do you get a job coaching at a Division three school right out of school? That's a pretty uh, good accomplishment at, at Connecticut College. Yeah, thank you. I, I was, I think I was pretty lucky with it. Um, at that time, I didn't even really realize that I could go right from being a college athlete to coaching in college. And I'm not sure exactly why I came to that conclusion in my head, but um, I, at that point, I just didn't know if it was even possible. And you know, I ended up uh, applying for the the job at Connecticut College and um, had known that head coach for a little bit because um, she used to work the, the New York State District Camp. So I was familiar with her. Um, didn't really know her on a personal level, but was pretty familiar with her. And um, and so I applied for the job and, um, you know, had a, a handful of different conversations with her and a few other people and, and thought it would be a, a great fit. And you know, with those division three jobs in particular, um, you know, most of the time those are part-time jobs for, for people. Right. And, and so I think that was, uh, you know, at that point I didn't, it didn't bother me at all because I knew I wanted to get into coaching and that was a, a passion of mine and something I wanted to, to do more, more so long-term. And I thought, you know, what's better than, than coaching in the same league you played in. And so that, that was, was my, uh, that's my next uh, question, yeah. right? Like, yeah. so I, I, I did the math on that. Now, this has got to be like a rival of yours. I mean, you're you're putting <laughs> – so you, you leave the Trinity jacket behind and you put on the Connecticut College jacket. Now, does it, did it feel a little weird putting that jacket on the first time? <laughs> it was uh, – yes, you could definitely say that. And I – it was it was definitely a, a little bit of a transition for me because not only was I coaching against, you know, some of my best friends. Um, yes. But I was also coaching against them in my first game ever as a – you know, division three college no coach. We played Trinity. So yeah, so it was, uh, it was a, a little bit nerve wracking to say the least, but it's uh, definitely an experience I'll never forget. And um, I was, uh, you know, pretty happy to see this now. We actually won that game against Trinity. We hadn't beat them in a, a very long time. So it's uh, it was a, a very good game. So I was pretty fortunate to have a, a nice victory against my alma mater first game as a, as a college coach. Yeah, that's funny. You probably had a pretty good scouting report on those guys. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Uh, so moving forward, then you, you, you. After two years, and I'm doing the math here. It's like you're like 24 years old, and you're the Division One assistant coach at Union. How did how did that feel putting that jacket on, or whatever you want to say? You know, heading it over to Union. Yeah, yeah. Again, I. I think I was just really fortunate to, to have gotten that position too. And it, it was always a, a dream of mine to be a division one assistant coach. And um, honestly, I, I believe I got there a lot quicker than I thought. Um, but it was, I, I really give a lot of the credit due to the people that I've worked with and, you know, the connections that I made, you know, at Connecticut college, you know, at Trinity and then with my experience with USA hockey um, and a couple of different capacities there. And um, so I was fortunate to, have met the head coach Josh Kiva um, during my internship with USA Hockey and kept in touch with him a little bit. And then when he got the the head coaching job at Union, you know, I knew that that was a place that I could certainly see myself. And you know, a, a school like Union is obviously very similar to a school like Connecticut College and and Trinity. And so right. I, I figured, you know, there's there's really no better fit for me than to 
to segue my coaching career from division three to division one. And um, I have had a really great relationship with Josh and continue to, to have one and really see him as one of my mentors there as well from a coaching and teaching perspective too. So you spend three years at Union, and at this point, you finally become um, accustomed to traveling to Minnesota. What were some of the things that crossed your mind when you uh, came to Minnesota to recruit for the first time? Yeah, I, I think it's uh, it's sort of overwhelming when you're, you're not very familiar with the state at first because you know that there's there's a lot of depth uh, with the, the hockey here in Minnesota, and there's a lot of really good hockey players. And so you're trying to, to run around to different ranks while also getting a good evaluation um, on those different players. And so, you know, when I would come out to recruit here in Minnesota, we would spend, you know, two or three days. And, and I miss quite a lot of union games um, to right. be able to recruit these players. And, um, and so you want to make sure that, you know, you're doing your due diligence and, and trying to, you know, build those connections where you have, you know, people that, um, you know, understand the, the Minnesota hockey, yeah. <laughs> the hockey, I should say. And, um, so I had a lot of people kind of guiding me throughout that process of Winnie Broat being one of those people. And, um, and so I think, you know, we wanted to make sure that, you know, we got to see all the players that, you know, we thought would be a good fit for, for ourselves at union, but, um, wanted to make sure we kept our ears open to, to be able to look at, at different programs too. So, um, did a lot of recruiting at Blake and, and, you know, high schools around, you know, this area too. And so it was, uh, it was definitely an interesting transition for me to, to start recruiting in Minnesota for sure. Um, when you, when you got here and you're watching a, a Christmas tournament game, um, were you, were you, amazed by how much talent was here or or was it in just pockets absolutely absolutely yeah it was it's something that I had seen a little bit you know throughout my experiences with USA hockey of just the the amount of talent that comes from a state like Minnesota but you know like you said as I, I went to those Christmas tournaments I was like man there there is so much more talent than I can even imagine in one state and that's something that was one of the major reasons why we would come out here as much as we did was because there were so many high end players that this was becoming one of our niches, you know, when we were at union, um, because, you know, even some of the, the really high end players were, were, were taken by, you know, other schools, but we knew that there were other players that were going to fit our needs and do a really great job um, relative to, maybe other parts of the U S that, um, you know, weren't as strong top to bottom as Minnesota is. Did you find like it was kind of a, uh, the, the, a lot of the same schools were chasing after the same girls or were you, did you, did you find yourself, uh, finding a kind of a niche type of player here in Minnesota? Yeah. Yeah. I think there were a lot of schools that were surprising that we had overlap with, um, right. different institutions, you know, big and small, um, scholarship and non-scholarship and, and so I think it was kind of interesting to hear, you know, where these players, these athletes were looking at. Um, but, you know, a lot of that was due to just the number of, of quality hockey players. I think that's what it all comes back to is there are so many good players that, you know, there were different types of schools that you wouldn't normally think would be looking at them that are because of their talent and their character and, you know, their the academics and all of those pieces that uh, they started to fit a lot of different institutions in a lot of different ways. Did you think when you when you saw Minnesota kids play, um, or, or actually, t- 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 when you when you heard that North Dakota was losing their program, did did it mm-hmm. did it increase? Did it did it up your game here in Minnesota? There was going to be twenty more scholarship types of available here. Le- um, twenty fewer yeah. less opportunities. So even then, the, yeah, the, it got yeah, even better. Yeah. It's just like, it's kind of like the butterfly effect, right? When one team loses, everybody gains, kind of thing. Right, right, and and that was obviously a very unfortunate situation and one that you never hope ever happens again with right. with programs, no matter who it is. Yeah. Um. And and so you know when those when those guys folded, unfortunately, there were a, a couple of players that we reached out to. Uh, you know, obviously we reached out to their coaches first to make sure that we could, and they felt comfortable with us reaching out to their players, but. Um, you know, I think a lot of programs, uh, particular in the Minnesota area that, that really ended up valuing those players and played a big role, you know, for their programs long-term and, um, you know, that didn't really uh, affect us at union all that much, but I think it sort of started to, to spread the wealth out a little bit, um, between college programs, you know, like Duluth that, 
have had a lot of success, you know, since then. And, you know, certainly they've gotten a lot of quality players, very quality players from Minnesota. And, uh, but I think, you know, when you, you look at a program like North Dakota, who's had a lot of um, success getting players from different areas, um, you sort of start to wonder, you know, where those players were going and, and what programs were really going to maximize that too. So um, definitely a, a difficult situation because you want to be careful with what you do and, and really respectful, but yeah, um, yeah, that was an interesting situation for sure. Yeah. Did, did you think that um, when you when you worked these national camps, they were here up at Blaine, correct? When you worked for the U.S. when you did work for USA Hockey, they were they were actually at St. Cloud State. Right. I'm um, sorry, sorry, St. Cloud. Yeah. 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 So they've been there um, really ever since I started working for USA Hockey. Actually. It, was that the point when you started to see all oh, this Minnesota things different or, or was there a different or was there a difference then when, when it was just e- e- more of an even playing field with a number of kids from the U.S.? Because it's not like it's imbalanced. There's a balance of kids from all over the country. Right. Yeah, I think I, I really got a better sense of that uh, when I came to national camps. The other part of it, too, when I really realized, you know, how many good quality players there were in Minnesota was when I was working other district camps. So right. in district tryouts. Um, so I was an evaluator for, for New York, New Jersey, New England, um, the multi-district camp, which is basically the whole West coast. So I pretty much got everything. Um, I was, as an evaluator for a lot of different places where, you know, there were only, let's say two or three spots for each position. Um, and then you look at a place like Minnesota where they're, there were, you know, 15 to 20 spots for each position, right? Um, roughly. And so I think that's kind of where you realize, you know, not only do they have a lot of players, but when they do go to national camp, they're making an impact. And and that's not to say that's, you know, only the case for Minnesota athletes, but um, when you look at just the, the number of quality players, again, you, it's very, very easy to, to see and realize that, um, these players are, are legitimate and, you know, it's a definitely a testament to the U18 program and the U22 programs, national teams, New York, where those guys are from. And, you know, a handful of them are from Minnesota and, and there's a reason for it. Right. So now you get this job uh, in the fall of 19, uh, last fall, uh, we can say, with the Chinese national team. I think I'm, I'm fascinated. I got a million questions about this. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. but with, I, already, I opened the show with it. I'm like, oh, I want to ask a couple questions. I got a few more questions. I, I'm fascinated <laughs> by it. But one of them is like the similarities uh, when you're trading, uh, you know, Olympic style athletes. You know, these are the best athletes in, in their country for the sport, ice right. hockey. Um, what are some similarities and differences between these women that you were training this past year versus the ones you say, say Americans or, or the ones you, you trained, um, at the division three, division one level. Do you see some similarities, see some differences between these two? Yeah. Yeah. There, there's certainly a lot of similarities. Um, I would say the biggest difference between, um, maybe I'll speak more for NCAA players versus the, you know, these Olympic athletes was, um, and I, I think maybe some of this has to do with just their culture of, they kind of like to be told, you know, what to do or, you know, what do you do in this situation versus what should you do here? Um, and so they like to kind of be told what to do. And, mm-hmm. um, and I, you could say that for a lot of different athletes in general, um, regardless of where they're from. But I think that was probably our biggest challenge with this group of athletes in particular was, to, you know, not only get them out of their comfort zone, but get them to understand you know, in in different situations, you know, you might try something else or you could look at this instead or just play and kind of figure it out in some ways. Um, And we would say that to them because we wanted to make sure that they were trying different things and their, you know, their creativity was flowing and it's really hard for them to grow as, as hockey players when, you know, you're, you're telling them exactly what to do all the time. And so, That was that was probably our biggest difference and something that, you know, we certainly struggled with a little bit, too, at the college level. And that's why you see programs playing more small area games where they're focused on making decisions in more of a game like situation at a, at a higher pace. And um, you see shorter practices because you want you know players to play at a high level and pushing them out of their comfort zones. And um, so I think probably the, the biggest difference was, you know, showing them, you know, where to use their creativity. And so once they got to a game like area um, or a game time situation, then they felt more comfortable and they could just play off their instincts instead of, you know, what they should do. 
Well, uh, we'll get to the language barrier in a second, but isn't it kind of a double-edged sword? <laughs> you know, isn't it kind of a double-edged sword as a coach to talk about creativity and we want you to create, we want to you know, develop plays. <laughs> right. And then when they do something wrong, you tell them that they did it wrong. It's like, wait, I was trying to be creative there, but don't be too creative, <laughs> right? You yeah, see where I'm exactly. going with this? And then, exactly. and, then, and then with that, you know, you're telling me they want to be told what to do kind of thing. Well, right. plus then you factor in the language barrier. Like, it's a really tough job. <laughs> it was tough for sure. But I think, you know, I, a lot of people ask this question too, you know, just friends included. And, you know, I think I've, I've really valued this uh, position in particular because it's made me simplify my language a lot more. And so I think, you know, as you continue through your coaching career, you find different ways to, to say things. And most of the time it becomes a little bit more in depth, whether that's, you know, listening to different NHL coaches speak, you start to pick up their language and their kind of their hockey lingo. But um, this was a really good reminder for me that sometimes keeping things simple and being direct with what you're saying is, is actually just as helpful and in some ways more helpful depending on the players that you're coaching. I would think you would, we'll get to the language barrier here, but I would think yeah. uh, there would be challenges um uh, in the game setting versus the practice setting, the practice setting would be kind of a sea dog show dog th- kind of thing where you <laughs> right. show them the drill and they would just follow. Right. It's a little bit of languagelessness, if that's a word, um, yeah. <laughs> ver- versus the game situation. Talk about both setting up a practice plan and then setting up a coaching in game about those, both of those things. Yeah. I think our, our practice plan was the same as we would for, for any other high-end program, um, we wanted to make sure that we're, we're still creating a, a high-tempo, high-paced practice. Um, the thing that probably would slow down practice the most was actually explaining the drills. Um, so we, you know, we would explain, we'd start to explain a drill. We would pause for a second, let the translator translate, right. um, and then continue on to explain. And, you know, we follow sort of the, the same schedule there with that. But um, we did a lot of it through, through drawing. We did a lot of it using our translators, but for the most part, I was really, really impressed with the group of players that we have, um, the Chinese players that we had, because they were so good at, you know, seeing what we drew or hearing what we said and applying it, that it was probably the most impressive thing I've, I've ever seen hockey players do. They were, they are just very dialed in. Um, they know what you want them to do and they essentially did it perfect <laughs> you know right. what you, you don't typically expect and you know you look at some of your you know your college players and you tell them to go around the circle and they cut right through the dot you know and so <laughs> these guys didn't uh, they didn't have that kind of uh i don't know if it was i'm paying attention more or less or um what that was but they were they're very very skilled in that way and it was like I said, the most impressive thing I've really ever seen what about, as a coach. What about during the game, the language barriers, you know, a, play, yeah. a player turns the puck over or something that just makes up, makes an error, an unforced error. And you want to explain <laughs> to her what uh, you want to explain to her about something about what she did. What would that be like in, in, in the, in the, with the translator? Yeah, it's a, that was a little bit more challenging even when you're, you know, you're calling your goalie to come off or you're calling for them to change. You know, obviously the, some of them would, would pick up more than others, what you were saying. And, and a lot of them were pretty good at actually understanding English too. So um, I want to make sure we give them, you know, the credit that they deserve because yeah. they've learned the English language pretty well. But um, when we're trying to coach them on the bench, like I said, we did a lot of, you know, we used the board quite a bit. Um, and, you know, because they were high level players and have been coached and understand the game pretty well, um, it was, it was a little bit easier than you would, you would think. Right. Um, cause if you could draw things and then if you could translate, you know, a sentence or two from the, the translator of what you're looking for, they could usually pick up as to what you were saying. And, um, and if they didn't quite understand through the game and I could kind of tell that, um, I would always make sure to go back and show them a video clip, you know, that Monday or Tuesday following the game and say, this is kind of what I was talking about. Is that kind of what you heard from me and sort of have it be more of a conversation about that stuff. What about the, the, hmm, the culture, the cultural difference, like what, like a yelling coach versus a not yelling coach. Is that something they're used to in their country or not used to in their yeah. country? You know what I mean? Like, cause right. I, I could see myself just completely crossing a, a, a cultural boundary that I didn't know was there. 
For sure. For sure. Yeah, there, there definitely were those, those cultural boundaries. Um, they definitely wanted us to yell at them more um, because that's kind of what they were used to. And um, you sound like a, a really mean coach, by the way. So I'm sure you fell, <laughs> fell right into that with quite a bit of ease, right? Exactly. Exactly. It's, uh, you know, Rhonda Curtin, who's the head coach. There's um, another the yeller. And, she's a total yeller. Yeah, I've seen exactly. her. She's, she's not a yeller either. No, and, no. Um, you know, all of the other coaches on staff weren't like that. And so I think that was probably their biggest issue with us. And we tried to educate them as to why it's important for us to just, you know, speak to them and um, let them know you know, that we either want more from them in a, in a very calm voice or just trying to, you know, get them more excited around what we're doing. Um, but they were definitely used to definitely more of a yelling culture, um, compared to us where we, we wanted to teach and, you know, people in our minds aren't being taught as well, or, you know, taking in as much information as they would, if you were just speaking to them in, in a normal tone or, or showing them why. And, you know, sometimes we would catch ourselves getting frustrated with with that language barrier, and and some of that was due to the mistranslation because our translators yeah. didn't quite understand that. Well, there's the hockey lingo. Hockey. How is the exactly. translator guy going to know or woman going to know the 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 uh, lingo? It's tr- it's a lot of tricky lingo. Exactly, exactly. You know, you look at at coaches, you know, English speaking um, that have different information and ways of saying things that you don't understand. And then you add in a, a completely different language to that. So there's a lot of different pieces that are, are challenging, but I think it was a, a good reminder for us as coaches to, to make sure that, you know, we're staying positive. We're, we're high energy, even if, you know, they can't understand every single word that we're saying, uh, we're encouraging them and that they know that we want them to be the best athletes and people that they possibly can be. And so I think when you have kind of that, that general understanding and everyone's on the same page that it becomes a lot easier of a message to convey, you know, for us to trust them and for them to trust us. And, um, and that's, uh, that made the coaching a lot easier for us. You, you talked to me before we, before the show that, that the, the, the Chinese language isn't something you can master, something you can, there's too many different <laughs> right. octaves of how to, you can say a word, but it has five different meanings type of exactly. thing. So you couldn't actually use your Chinese language skills, even if you had, had learned them, correct? No, I think it, it takes quite a bit of practice. And we tried to learn, you know, a few words here and there. It's it, whenever we tried, I, I feel like every time the girls would make fun of us and just say, <laughs> nope, that's not what you said, you know, or give us a hard time. So we had some fun with it. That's for sure. Um, but no, it's a, it's a really challenging language to learn. Um, and, you know, I, I spoke Spanish through college. That was kind of the, the language of choice. And that was I would say 10 times easier to learn than Chinese. So <laughs> a lot of credit to those guys. Right. So, all right. So now you move on. Now, now you're here at the, the at Blake. And I, I think it's kind of interesting. And when you, when you played college hockey at Trinity, you had both, you had stu- you had uh, alums from Blake and Breck. So you kind of had, yeah. a, you got a little bit of a preview of the uh, Breck Blake rivalry and probably got a taste of what Blake is a little bit alike by going to college with some Blake girls. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. They had, I had two teammates. I went to Blake. Um, Laura Comeric was a senior when I was a freshman. And then actually in my sophomore year, Kate Freely was a, a freshman from Blake too. So um, a lot of, uh, of Blake blood in the, you know, the Trinity realm. And, you know, I think there's a, a couple of girls that are either looking or, um, have gone there, you know, since I've been there. Um, but there was, uh, a lot of involvement with Minnesota hockey, not only at Trinity, but at Connecticut college and, um, other NESCAC schools too, that I'm obviously very familiar with. So it's, uh, it's great to see some of the, the Minnesota girls going out East. So when you are, are now you've taken the helm at, at Blake and this is a completely different time. I mean, you, you, by, by now you've been hired for a few weeks. You would have already met the, the parents and the players. You haven't had that opportunity because of the COVID right. stalemate. Um, what are you doing uh, as far as, I mean, I mean, talk about setting up a culture. It's pretty hard to set up a culture when you can't <laughs> meet face to face. What are your plans as far as a culture and a vision for the Blake girls program? Yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, just to, to start, I, I kind of sent out an introductory email um, about myself and about, uh, about Kelsey Klein, who was our associate head yep. coach at Blake too. Um, so we, we sent out that email and um, I think Nick Rathman, the 
athletic director at Blake has been fantastic along with the rest of the athletic department and even He's kind Sean of a Reed dream and, AD, isn't he? He is. He's, he's just, fantastic. He's, he's a sports yeah. guy. He and I were trading texts. He's like, I need some sports. Like he was like a, <laughs> like a junkie or something. I'm like, and then that's the kind yeah. of guy you want, you know? Exactly. Exactly. And I think, you know, most people would feel pretty nervous about accepting a job when you haven't really seen the ins and outs of the school. But I think, you know, more, the more conversations I had with Nick, the, the more I knew I could trust him and, and would see him as a, obviously a leader and have only heard great things about Nick from a, an athletic director perspective and just his leadership. And, you know, he sends out these emails to the athletic department every Monday that, you know, kind of give an update on the situation, but also give, you know, little pieces of advice and, and books and podcasts to read and listen to. And he's definitely a, a great, great leader and someone I'm really looking forward to to working with more often and uh, and getting to meet in person, quite frankly. So <laughs> there's yeah. a, lot of, did you, a lot of things I'm looking forward to. Did you do your entire interview process via Zoom calls? We did. We wow. did, yes. <laughs> wow, that's amazing. Yeah. I just had a, a Aaron Fulton who was hired at Eastview High School, same thing. All the interview process okay. was done online, which is just fascinating to me. It's yeah, it's definitely a crazy situation, and it's uh, it just seems like the the right and the only thing to do at this point, because otherwise you're you're just waiting for this to to pass us, this virus to pass us, and we can't quite count on that anymore. So we've got to do everything we can to be in the best position possible. And I think Nick was did a great job with not. Uh, not rushing me in my decision by any means and encouraged me to reach out to different people about him and about Blake. And, um, and so I felt really comfortable with this position and, and being a part of the, the Blake family. So tell me when, when you're taking on the, the, the head coaching position, when you, when you play the game or see the game or coach the game, uh, when Blake is playing well, what will your team look like in the next few years? Yeah, I think, you know, they've they've certainly had quite a bit of success, you know, with with Sean Reed and he's done a great job with that group and these groups in the past. And, you know, I've certainly with the, the talented players that we have at Blake, you know, we want to make sure we're playing at a fast pace. We've got a lot of good, good speed on our on our roster and um, a lot of hopefully upcoming players, too, that we're I'm looking to, to learn more about and see myself, too, quite frankly. But um, you know, kind of the way I envision our program is, is to be playing at a fast place at, excuse me, fast pace, playing with a lot of puck possession. Um, that's really my biggest thing is, you know, possessing the puck. And that's something that I've realized more and more, you know, being at the collegiate level, how important it is to see players at the high school level, possessing the puck and playing with confidence. And so, you know, we'll certainly arrange practices, you know, around, you know, working with creativity, building confidence, um, you know, making quick decisions with the puck. But also, really, the the next big key component for me is, is playing as a team. You know, how can we get up and down the ice the quickest? Um, are we working together? You know, are we in places to um, support each other well with and without the puck? You know, how is our communication? There's a lot of, of key things that, that I'll be looking for and that will certainly start to express to the players the more we get to to meet with them in person and work with them on the ice a little bit more that I'm looking forward to talking with them and sharing experiences too. And, you know, I certainly want it to be a, a two way street where, you know, they can give their input to me and um, you know, we'll, we'll certainly give input to them, you know, Kelsey and myself. And, um, and so there's a lot of, you know, things that we're really looking forward to, to learning more about, you know, their vision, you know, and what is kind of our first ideas as staff and, you know, how can we come together to, to play as a group so we're all on the same page? When you when you see your uh, practice, do you, do you plan on changing much from, from pre the previous regime or, or do you have plan on having shorter practices? Do you have bringing in something kind of new, a new look, a new feel for, for the program? Uh, that's a, a little bit of a tougher question for me to answer because I'm not all that familiar with right. how they've practiced previously. Yeah. <laughs> so, um that's a little bit more challenging. Um, I will tell you the way that like I've, I've always enjoyed practices, you know, we've, and I should say this purely based off of my, you know, most recent experiences, mostly with union. And this is kind of what Josh Kiba has shown me too. And um, we've always been big proponents of, of playing fast. And so with that, you can't have practices that are, 
you know, two hours long. And that's something that's definitely segued into the college, you know, the college realm. And um, so certainly we'll be looking at, you know, an hour and 15 minute practices, maybe earlier on in the year, there'll be maybe an hour and a half, just if we're going to focus more on systems or, you know, whatever that looks like. But, um, you know, my kind of the way I would structure practice is, you know, kind of a warm up drill, you know, two or three, you know, big more systems drills. And then I always like to finish with some sort of competition, whether that's a, a small area game or even um, a conditioning drill, but something, something that they're leaving practice feeling really good with. And, and you want your players feeling really confident with what they've learned in practice. And even if it starts a little bit slower, if you're working on some, let's say some defensive zone coverage and you find a way to, to make that as fun as possible and, and feeling good about what they've learned, but also applying that to a fast paced game or drill or whatever that might be to sort of finish practice with. Well, I, I kind of want to come out and practice. I like the fast pace. <laughs> and I'm guessing you're more you're than gonna, welcome to. Yeah, I'll, I'll give it a shot. I'll give it a shot. Um, you talk about the fast paces. Um, does this require you to come in the locker room maybe 15 minutes early and kind of walk through the agenda? So when you hit the ice, you're ready to roll. Yeah, then there's definitely a balance to to teaching versus letting them go out and try it. And, um, you know, certainly we'll, there will be practices where, you know, we'll drop a, a drill and say, hey, this is kind of the first drill. You know, this is something for you guys to think about. Um, we'll get right on the ice, you know, jump right into that first drill. And then, you know, we'll spend, you know, two or three minutes explaining the next drill and then we'll jump right into that. But um, there are going to be certain times where we'll certainly have to, to slow down the practice um, if we're focusing more on systems-based things and teaching because, um, you know, as much as I want it to be a, a fast-paced practice, I want that to be um, a very well-educated practice too where, you know, as, our, as a coaching staff, this is kind of our time to teach. And then once we get to games, you know, we're going to leave that in the hands of the players. And, and that's something that uh, has always kind of stuck with me and, um, you want them to feel really, really good and confident going into games. And I think if you end up teaching, you know, too much during a game or, or not enough in practice, that's when you really start to see the disconnect between uh, players and coaches. And so I want to make sure that it's an environment where, um, you know, you can make mistakes and it's okay and try new things, but, uh, but know that, you know, us as a coaching staff, we're always going to have your back and your best interests. And, you know, we want our, our players to kind of play with that free mindset once you get to a game. Right, right. All right, so we're going to wrap the show up here today with uh, five fun questions. I've, I've given you the questions in advance so you know what they are, so no surprises. Um, <laughs> so here we go. Are you ready? Okay, I'm ready. All right, uh, most used emoji. I, uh, I actually went through my phone to look at that, and I think it's the uh, the laughing face. Laughing face. <laughs> Probably I like my that one. most used emoji. Yeah. Most used one. All right. Um, if you were a baseball player, what would your walk up walk up song be? Oh geez, this is this is where you got me. I know. Too. I, and I, I still had to, I, <laughs> a tough time thinking about this one, but uh, you know, I I definitely lean more towards pop songs. Yep. So even uh, a little Taylor Swift song of some sort that would probably be in the mix. Um, okay. But I don't. I don't think I can think of one. Well, you're not 22 right anymore. Sorry. You're not 22. I know. You're not 15. <laughs> not that one. You know, I don't know. I'm just. That's the first one I could think of. I'm sorry. Exactly. I, was, I was trying to coach you. I was trying to help you there. <laughs> I know. <laughs> All Thank right. You. So we'll just go Taylor Swift anything, and you'd be happy, right? Okay. All right. Perfect. Good enough. Good enough. All right. Uh, if you had owned a time machine, would you go into the future, or would you go back in the past? I would. I would go into the future. And where would you go? I, you know, I don't know if there would be a, a certain place in particular, but I, I'm just really excited to see all of the different creations that we would, we would see. I, you know, there's certainly things that I look back even 10 years ago that I'm like, geez, that's a, that was the coolest, newest thing. And now it's archaic, you know, you're right. looking at like a VHS tape or a DVD. And so um, I think there's just, there's just so much to see and learn in the future. And there's so many brilliant minds that. There's not be, even really one thing or place that I would be uh, excited to see because there's just so many exciting things in general. 
I think I, I told you this before the show. I want to see how this whole COVID thing <laughs> gets yeah. figured out. <laughs> exactly. You know, that would be the only thing I'd want to see. Everything else I could handle. I just, this is the biggest unknown, you know, a lot oh, of absolutely. huge unknown. All right. Uh, <laughs> speaking of the COVID, what show did you binge watch or watch or finish or you didn't think you would ever watch uh, during the COVID on Netflix or anywhere else? Yeah. Um, the show that we, we watched in, in our house of roommates here is Ozark. And that was fantastic. I would definitely recommend it to anyone who hasn't seen it. So I've watched, I just finished the outer banks last night. Again, something I would have never watched in my lifetime. Okay. And it's so scary and, you know, on the edge of my seat and just suspenseful. And I was running with a guy today and he goes, well, Ozark is like, Outer Banks on steroids. I'm like, I don't want anything to do with it. It's just too intense for yeah. me. I can't. I want to <laughs> yeah. enjoy myself. It's just so scary, right? Exactly. It's a good exactly. show, though. I, I like the actors, and I've seen some of the previews of Ozark. It looks phenomenal. Yeah, yeah, it's definitely a good one. All right, last one. Uh, favorite place you've traveled to? Favorite place is probably Paris. Really? Uh, I went there last spring. Yeah, with my mom and my my twin sister, and that was probably the coolest place that I've been to. How did you? What was? What prompted it? Just, just, what was the reason to go? Yeah, just we, wanted to get somewhere to go, bucket list kind of yeah, thing. Yeah, we. Uh, yeah, it was also it was kind of a, a a little bit of a present for my mom that my sister and I took we for uh, her birthday, and we've always wanted to kind of go and explore. And my sister did a semester abroad in London, and at that time she went over to Paris and said it was awesome. And so we wanted to to take her there and I'd never been to, to Paris either. We did a lot of the classic sightseeing and the Eiffel tower and all that good stuff. And it was just gorgeous. It's yeah. a, it was a really, really pretty place. So I would definitely go back there in a second. Oh, that's pretty cool. It's been great to <laughs> yeah. meet you, Whitney. We got this in in just about an hour. Uh, we learned where you grew up playing the game, how you played the game, and how you've coached in the in the past six or seven, eight years since you graduated from college. And, and uh, it's been exciting to get to know you. Yeah, thank you so much, Tony. I really appreciate your time, too. And uh, we, we'll have a lot of fun. And as soon as this uh, COVID thing breaks up, who knows? Uh, I'll come out and watch your team play. And maybe even if I'm lucky enough, I'll come out and even practice with the Blake Bears. <laughs> You're more than welcome any day, anytime. We're going to definitely out. do it. <laughs> Whitney Colbert from the Blake Bears on the Lots of Matzah Pizza Podcast.